Hey, welcome to the Word of Life AG podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with this week's sermon. We are just starting out our brand new series on wisdom. And this week, Pastor Tom brought a really inspiring word on minimizing regrets. If you got something amazing from the message this week, be sure to share this podcast with a friend. And as always, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your content so you don't miss a message. All right, let's dive in. Good morning, Word of Life. How are we doing? Everyone doing okay? I think it's terrible that people keep making fun of Mike Chiz. I think it's dreadful. But it is time for you to give up those prodigal ways, Mike. Anyway, uh, I'm going to ask something for everyone today that I I don't typically do so, and I feel if I did ask it every week, it would just get real old real quick. Um, But today's message, I'm looking forward to getting into. uh, As soon as we started thinking about the series, we were in the middle of, uh, called Wisdom, uh, I knew that this was something that I wanted to approach, and it's been really challenging for me over the past few weeks. This has been on my mind, and I've been prepping. Um, There's a lot that we're going to cover today, and hopefully a lot of really helpful stuff. So what I'm going to ask is that if you're not typically in the habit of taking notes during the message, hopefully you're able to grab your phone. Um, grab a pen, pad. If you haven't got any paper, just grab a pen and write on the neck on the person in front of you. But take some notes down because I really hope that there's going to be something helpful here for you today. I really believe that's going to be the case. And then also, if you're not in the habit of listening to the message midweek on our podcast or watching it on YouTube, this would be one of those messages I would encourage you uh, and invite you to check out because I really think there's going to be a bunch of stuff here, hopefully, that's going to be helpful to you. But the series that we're in uh, on Wisdom was started last week by Nick Scholes. He was able to come be here and get us uh, started with that on the first weekend of the year. And this idea of wisdom, this uh, need for a series, the reason we're spending time on it, it really was born out of a message that I shared back in November. And in November, I shared a message on the book of Ecclesiastes. And a small portion of the message, like just like a point within the message, was talking about this subject of wisdom. And in my preparation for that point, uh, a, few we- a few months ago, back in November, I was startled with how little information I could find, or how much little research, or uh, how much um, you know, content there was that the very best Christian authors, the thinkers, the leaders, the people that I would look to for wisdom and insight and guidance, and people that I would go to to prepare and get ready for messages, there was very, very little content that had been prepared on the subject of wisdom. And it made me think, like, man, the Bible has so much to say on the subject of wisdom, and yet it appears that the church at large is not talking about this much at all. So I thought it was a great way to start our year. There are five weekends in January, so we're going to spend every weekend looking at wisdom. I'm looking forward to getting further in that today. And I'm certainly not presenting myself as the epitome of wisdom. Why is Megan enthusiastically nodding? But I can say that wisdom is something that I sincerely want in my life. And one of the reasons I want wisdom is to minimize regrets. And that whole concept about minimizing regrets is the main thought for today. And I would expect that that is something that's relevant and important to everyone, everywhere, ever. To be able to minimize the painful regrets we collect as we go through life. Many regrets are inevitable and uncontrollable but some are. And I will confidently say that every person here has a regret that they wish wasn't a part of their story. Life gives us enough pain, trials, upsets, injustice, without us adding to the problem by picking up extra regrets that we could have avoided. Wisdom is making good decisions. Wisdom is thinking clearly. Wisdom is being led by the Holy Spirit, as Nick spoke about last week. And the promise is that living with a pursuit of godly wisdom means we can minimize the regrets 
that we pick up. Regrets can take on different shapes and sizes. I'm not talking about embarrassing things that we wish we hadn't done, but rather those things in life that have truly hindered us in our life. It may be something that's obviously a terrible sin or it may be a lack of judgment, but wisdom leads to minimizing regrets. Wisdom leads to minimizing regrets. And to help us dead into this, I want to look at a couple of verses in Hebrews 12. But before we get to Hebrews 12, I just want to share something about uh, Hebrews chapter, third, uh, uh, chapter 11. Hebrews was written to strengthen the group of believers in the first century. They were going through a tough time of persecution. These new followers of Jesus were going through a difficult time. Often tragic persecution was coming against them. The audience of the book of Hebrews includes a large number of Jewish people who had placed their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. So the book leans heavily on what we now call the Old Testament to illuminate the truth of Jesus. Chapter 11 walks through a number of great Bible heroes as examples of faith, including Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Japheth, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, David, Samuel, and more. And all of these characters that is written off in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, all of those appear in the first quarter of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the, the first three quarters of your Bible, if you take that as a standalone body of scriptures, which is what these group of believers had at the time written down, was the Old Testament. This was their scriptures that God had revealed to them. All of the characters that are written in Hebrews 11 are contained in the first quarter. The point being is that here's a sample size of all the great biblical heroes. We can't write them all, but in just the first quarter of this, these are some of the heroes of the Bible that you'll see. Here are some of the great examples of faith. These examples of faith that are written off in Hebrews 11 are a representation, not just of the people strong in faith recorded in the Bible, but of the multitudes, the countless people who have lived a sincere life of faith that are not recorded in the Bible. And these recorded in chapter 11 are presented to us as an example. And with all this in mind, let's go to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd, your translation might say cloud instead of crowd, huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now, very easy to see that there's athletic imagery that's being used here. Even the word surround is often used in connection with the amphitheaters that the Romans used, that I'm sure you have in your mind, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, something along those lines. The word cloud that's used in many translations is an interesting visual picture that the author is using. Many translations of the Bible use the word cloud, and it paints this picture of a cloud of people, a vast crowd that imagery-wise looks like a cloud because there's so many people filling the stands of this amphitheater to strip the weights. We'll look at this more later, but essentially it's a runner getting ready to run unencumbered by heavy things. Endurance, the persistence and challenge shown by many great athletes. A race living with a sense of purpose and meaning. But we're also told that sin gets in the way. Sin that so easily trips us up. The regrets, those things we wish we hadn't done, the places we wish we wouldn't have been, the relationship that we didn't handle the way we should have, the time we broke somebody's trust, the reaction we gave that caused so many problems, things we thought we'd get away with. They act like a weight slowing us down and tripping us up in our pursuit of God. But wisdom promises that by making good decisions rooted in kingdom values, thinking clearly, not foggy with popular opinions and whatever the world around us is thinking, 
being led by the Holy Spirit, not our own selfishness or impulses, and getting rid of those things that are tripping us up so we can freely run after God. The desire to build wisdom into our lives will definitely help us in our thinking and decision-making. And wisdom will help us minimize regrets and minimize the weights we're carrying around. So I want to walk through that verse a little bit and just unpack a few moments here and there that I think are helpful. And then I've got seven, yes, seven uh, helpful steps that I think if we put into place, we can start seeing wisdom make a difference in our lives and minimize regrets. That list of seven started as three, then it became four, then it became five. And before we know it, here we are. And I had to put an end somewhere. So we're stopping at seven. So it sound like a plan? All right, everybody, there are three things, three perspective changes that I think we can see in the verse from Hebrews that we just read. Perspective change number one, the right perspective of the past. The right perspective of the past. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, people that have gone before us, people have lived life and finished it well, since we are surrounded by heroes of the past to the life of faith, this idea of the past and getting a perspective of the past. And there's this huge crowd of people that are cheering us on. These people that have walked the past, lived the past, that have finished their race strong. Those are the people cheering us on. Now, if you're anything like me and you're an enormous soccer fan, and I know there's a number of those people in America, but there's 11 players on a soccer team. Very often, they'll refer to the home crowd as the 12th man. The point being is that the 11 players on the field, they're doing what they can. They're leaving it all on the field. And the crowd is cheering them on, making the team play better than if there was no crowd there at all. Over Christmas, uh, someone very kindly got me an Amazon gift card. And I spent the Amazon gift card on getting all six Rocky movies. And I showed them to the kids for the first time. It was an important family moment for us. Megan was delighted. And for a few days, there was nothing on our TV except Rocky, because that's all the kids wanted to watch. But if you've seen the movie about the boxer Rocky Balboa, no matter how tough the fight is, no matter how much he's got to dig deep, and of course, it's all Hollywood and the story and all the rest of it, but there's a crowd cheering him on. That's not a million miles away from the picture that we're getting here. The difference is, I've never been a professional soccer player. It may surprise you to know, I have never been a professional soccer player. So when I go to a game, I can enthusiastically get behind my team. I can even tell the referee what he's getting wrong. I can even tell the players what they should be doing. But I'm just an armchair fan. I'm not a professional player. That's not the picture that we're getting here. These are people cheering us on in our race and our life of faith, pursuing God wholeheartedly. These are people that have run this race, that know the trials you and I are facing, if not regularly, then daily. They know this. They know it's worth enduring. They know it's worth keep going. They know that we can do it if we just persevere. These are not people that just enjoy watching games every once in a while on TV and they go to a game with all sorts of opinions. No, these are people that have gone before us in the past and they have finished their race strong and the picture that's being painted is that there is a whole cloud of these people roaring with encouragement for you and I to stick to this race that God has put in front of us. Come on, somebody, this is good. So when it feels impossible... Remember that there's a whole crowd cheering you on that have fought this fight and won. Those victorious from the past remind us that the track record of the life of faith 
that it's possible to find the strength to keep going, that God can bring order to chaos, that God does heal broken and devastated people, that sin doesn't have to rule our lives, that quitting our faith is not the road to take. The image is of a crowd so vast that it appears like clouds of people cheering you on, declaring, if we can do it, you can too. If we all found out it was worth it, you can too. The crowd of countless heroes of the faith that have gone before us are not upset that they missed out by following God. The heroes of the past cheer us on. The heroes of the past declare the life of faith is the life worth living. And that is the correct perspective of the past. Second perspective change, number two, the right perspective of sin. Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Now imagine if you saw somebody wearing a big leather jacket, they had a sweater, a hoodie on, they had jeans, Timberland boots, a hiker's backpack, carrying four bags of groceries, a pair of welder's gloves, and a hard hat. And if this person told you that they're going to go and run a marathon, you would instantly assume that they're going somewhere to get changed. The picture here is a, a marathon runner in the book of Hebrews. And they're trying to win and they're being told to take off unnecessary weights because the weights will easily cause the runner not only to slow down, but also to trip and fall. And this is the picture that we're told about in regards to sin. That in the life of faith we're committed to, we have crowds of believers that have gone before us cheering us on as we run and keep going. But if we don't get rid of the bad decisions, the bad habits, the mistakes, the old way of thinking, giving into temptation, unhealthy ways of thinking, selfishness, it can all cause big problems in our race. I've said this before, and it's important that we say it regularly. We don't hate sin because we're angry and self-righteous. We hate sin because we love people, and sin ruins people's lives. I'm going to say it again because I want this to be clear. This is who we are as a church and our approach to sin. We hate sin. But we don't hate sin because we're angry and self-righteous and judgmental and convinced we're better than anyone else. We hate sin because we truly, deeply love people. And sin ruins people's lives. The right perspective of the past is not that sin pays off, but rather a whole cloud of people cheering us on to get rid of sin that devastates and ruins lives. So we can leave it and keep on going in this life of faith. So this picture of sin and weights that we carry got me interested. The whole thought about carrying around regrets being something we pick up and collect as we go through life and as we go through life and perhaps don't act out of wisdom and perhaps pick up a regret here and pick up something here. And that image of a weight that needs to be let go was interesting to me. The visual of someone carrying extra baggage, of being weighed down by life, hindering us from running the race, slowing us down and even worse, causing us to fall. But with the right perspective, we can see that this leads to regret. Sin, tripping and falling, the right perspective of sin shows sin for what it really is, a poisoned meal that smells great. And I don't need to convince anybody of this, I just need to invite you to look at the world around you. Look at your own experiences with sin. Look at your own interactions with people that are engaging in healthy things. Look at the world, you do your own evaluation and you'll see the track record is remarkable. The second thing, a right perspective of sin. The third, the right perspective of the future. The right perspective of the future. Hebrews 12, later on in verse one, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, 
This is future focused. It's talking about things that are ahead that God has set before us. The idea that a runner has a reason to, to step forward and keep going in the same way every believer has a reason to wake up every day and just keep going and just keep moving because God has set something before us that we are gonna wanna be a part of. So we get up and we run. We embrace our life of faith with a sense of purpose. If there's an obstacle, we overcome it. If there's a tough season, we get through it. If there's a temptation, we reject it and we move on in Jesus' name because God has set a race before us changes our perspective of the future. Those three things, those perspective changes, the right perspective of the past, the right perspective of sin, and the right perspective of the future. And how do we get these perspective changes? Book of Hebrews goes on into, chapter, into verse two. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion, another athletic imagery, who initiates and perfects our faith. Our eyes on Jesus, centering our perspective on him, changing how we think about the past, about sin, and about our future. Jesus is the initiator, the author, the originator, the pioneer of our faith, and keeping our eyes locked on him, letting him change our understanding, our rationale, and our decision-making. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, wisdom will follow. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, wisdom will follow. And as promised, I got seven steps to apply wisdom and minimize regrets. Are we good with seven? Are we good with this? Okay, seven steps to apply wisdom. Number one, trust what God says. Trust what God says. Part of keeping our eyes on Him is having our sights fixed on His wisdom, His values, and His commands. Confident that He wants what's best for us and that He wants to spare us from the pain of regret. That's why I'm so encouraged by the activity on the Bible plan. We're all discovering together, those of us that are going through it, more and more about God's perspective on life and relationships and living according to His will and His values, loving people the way He does. And as we're discovering what God says, the challenge inevitably comes, and it's going to be, will we do what God says? Will we live with His values and conduct ourselves in alignment with what He has said? And I wrote this down, and this was really helpful for me. The difference between knowing what God says and doing what God says is trust. The difference between knowing what God says, knowing what's in the Bible, knowing what the Lord has spoken to you in prayer time, knowing what the Lord has spoken to you as you've brought to him your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations and your life and your worries and your concerns in prayer, and doing what he says is do we trust him with the outcome? Trust what God says, trusting that he knows more than I do, trusting he knows more than popular opinions, Trusting he knows more than tradition. Trusting that his desire is to protect me, not for me to miss out or be stifled. And that trust will lead to action, and those actions and decisions will help us minimize regret. Second thing, learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. And this is a youth group favorite Bible verse. Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. And there's an old saying, not from the Bible, the saying is, if I could kick the person most responsible for my troubles in the pants, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. If one person claps, we all have to. But it takes humility to admit my part of, to admit my part of the problem. My pride will keep me re collecting regrets. 
because pride will prevent me from admitting I am a part of the problem. A fool repeats his foolishness. I don't want that to be part of my story. I don't want that to be how my wife and children think of me. I want to be honest and brave enough to admit I have a part in this and I need to learn from my mistakes so I can move forward and pick up as minimal amount of regrets as possible. I don't want to be sensitive and careful because I know many people have a tendency to take on the blame for things that they shouldn't feel any guilt from. But if there you have regrets and you have hurts and in your mind they're never your fault, if there's a pattern of this happening, perhaps it's time to accept the challenge and get some help figuring through why you keep ending up in these situations. Number three, learn from other people's regrets. Learn from other people's regrets. I've said a number of times that learning from other people's mistakes is the only shortcut that works. Learning from other people's mistakes is the only shortcut that works. Popular wisdom is that people have to learn from their own mistakes. Why? I mean, don't we think that life will bring enough problems to learn from? Do we really need to dive headfirst into getting some extra ones? We're talking about minimizing because we know it's impossible to eliminate but why can't my kids learn from my mistakes? Why can't we learn from observing our peers? Why can't we learn from all of human history? Why do more people have to acquire more regrets to learn something that has already has a painful track record that is plain as day to see? Take the shortcut, save yourself pain, struggle, frustration, and regret, be done with it, take the shortcut, Learn from other people's mistakes. It's the only shortcut that works, and it is worth taking. Number four, think two steps ahead. Think two steps ahead. Now, common wisdom is live in the moment. The common wisdom is live each day like it's your last. The problem is I don't want today to be my last day, and I want to enjoy my future. So I'm going to live like I've got a future that I should care about. Live today like you have a future you should care about. I was at a number of wedding, uh, a wedding a number of years ago uh, with Megan, and the wedding was with a young couple that was in our church, and it came to the point in the day where they were doing the family dances, and so they did the daddy-daughter dance, and, and then the groom got up with his mom to do a dance, and we we're all kind of circled around. You know, if you've been to a wedding, you know the deal. And I'm there, and I'm directly across from the groom's dad. And I knew a little bit about the backstory, mom and dad, of the groom. Um, they had become divorced. Their marriage had ended. The father was completely responsible. The details of this, I'm not 100% on, so I don't want to say anything that's untrue. But the marriage had fallen apart, and I know that the father bared the brunt of responsibility about why this marriage had fallen apart the way that it did. And I'm there at this wedding, and I'm watching this precious family moment that's happening. There's the son and mom dancing. There's the... Uh, the bride and her father dancing, and, you know, it's this beautiful family moment, and I'm directly across from the father who is now estranged from the family, and I'm looking at him, and I just saw deep regret in his eyes. Deep regret. I don't know the details. I know that he'd messed it up. I know that he'd ruined that marriage, and he'd ruined something in that family, I knew it was a deep tragedy. It was a deep regret that he, and then just to see this regret in his eyes. And, and my assumption, and this is an assumption, was that in that moment, it just magnified about what on earth have I done? There's this precious family moment. And instead of being right in the center of it with the family, there's a, I'm kind of on the outside here. And this deep regret I saw in this man, 
It's a heartbreaking moment. But it's a stark reminder to me of there's somebody that didn't think two steps ahead. They lived in the moment. There was something they wanted to do, they did it. There was something they wanted to be a part, they were a part of it. And it was they didn't stop and they didn't think with a clear head and a clear mind, what's the next step after that? What follows this? What's the knock-on effect from this? And consequently, he made a decision that devastated that family. Fifth thing, beware of strong emotions. Be aware of strong emotions. Strong emotions make weak decisions. Strong emotions make weak decisions. Strong emotions will cause us to lose our heads and perspective. Strong emotions will get our eyes off Jesus, even temporarily. And let's look at some biblical examples. David had a moment of lust, uh, lust, lost his head, and committed adultery. Paul and Barnabas had an angry dispute, and the ministry team was disbanded. Peter was scared when asked if he knew Jesus, and he swore up and down he'd never met him. Moses got frustrated and struck the rock instead of speaking to it as God had commanded. Out of jealousy, Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit. And greed was at least part of why Judas betrayed Jesus. Lust, anger, scared, frustrated, jealous, greedy, strong emotions. But each of these examples is followed up by deep regret. David was devastated with the after effects of his affair with Bathsheba. We're told later on that Paul and Barnabas did reconcile their relationship. Peter had a painful period of time before him and Jesus shared breakfast and Peter received forgiveness. Moses never got to see the promised land. Joseph's brothers wept when they finally realized Joseph was alive. Judas tried to give the money back before taking his own life. They all learned strong emotions make weak decisions. But be aware of strong emotions. Number six, ask people you trust. Ask people you trust. Proverbs 12, 15, fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. As we're thinking about the importance of listening, don't just look for the loudest voice in the room. Don't just look to what everyone else is doing. Definitely don't ask 12 different people until someone says what you want them to say. But ask people you know that love you. Ask people that you know they care about you. They want God's best for you. They care about your future. That they'll be alongside you if this all goes really, really well or if this goes really bad. People that have something valuable to say, some experience or insight that they've learned from. But ask people you trust. And this is one that I just couldn't leave out. Be in agreement with your spouse. Be in agreement with your spouse. Now, I'm somewhat of a broken record when it comes to giving advice. I've only really got a, help, a handful of helpful things to say. But one of the best pieces of advice I share is, what does your wife think about this? What does your husband think about this? Are you on the same page about this? In the script that I use for weddings, the phrase, in your unified pursuit of Christ comes up a lot. And it's a great picture of what marriage is, this unified pursuit of Christ. Both spouses fully committed to their relationship and their marriage is a pursuit of Christ. So when both people are in agreement, you've got a much better shot of getting it right than just one person demanding their way. A couple of verses from Ephesians. If one person claps, we all have to, it's the rule. A couple of verses from Ephesians on marriage that help emphasize this. Verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Each member of the couple coming together, submitting to one another, listening to one another, learning from one another, loving each other, putting each other first, has a much better chance of getting these difficult decisions right than one person demanding their way. Let me summarize that again, seven steps to apply wisdom to minimize regrets. Trust what God says, learn from your mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes, think two steps ahead, be aware of strong emotions, ask people you trust, and be in agreement with your spouse. That's an important reminder, and it's vital that I share this with you as a reminder today, that no regret is the final chapter. God is good, He's full of grace, God is committed to forgive and clean up each and every mess we make. But God delivers us from the past, but it can be a painful journey. And some of you here have experienced this firsthand. God delivers us from the past, but it can be a painful journey. He is faithful to forgive all unrighteousness, but it can be a painful journey that we didn't need to go on. Many of you will be aware of Dave Ramsey, the Christian financial expert, he came back from bankruptcy a number of years ago, but as he tells it, sounds like there are a lot of difficult moments in bouncing back from bankruptcy. There's a former mob boss that I follow on social media called Michael Franzisi. He became a Christian in federal prison a number of years ago, and the process of him leaving the mob and God cleaning up his life was very complicated and upsetting. Marriage is being restored after very painful counseling sessions. Addicts going through deeply challenging times in rehab relationships restored and forgiveness given to each other after years of broken trust. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, there's hope to each and every situation. But anyone that has had regret healed likely knows it can be a painful process. And it would have been far better to have avoided it altogether. Regrets hurt. The pain of our own making hurts. The most tragic period in the Old Testament, and Megan spoke about this recently, was the exile where the people of God were captured and Jerusalem was destroyed and they were taken away as captives by the Babylonian Empire. And it was their own sin that got them there. There was no one else to blame, but still there was hope. This is from Isaiah 14, verse 3. In that wonderful day, this is the people that are about to suffer the consequence of the worst of the worst. In that wonderful day, when the Lord gives His people rest from sorrow and fear, from slavery and chains, you will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your insolence has ended. For the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. The king that was terrorizing them was gonna fall. Freedom was coming. God was gonna deliver them from their mess. And for us, we should grab a hold of this verse. The Lord gives his people rest from sorrow and fear, from slavery and chains. God delivers us from the past, but it can be a painful journey. And I say again, the best testimony is a boring testimony. That's what I want for my kids. Let the exciting bits of your testimony be the amazing ways God works in your life. The adventures that you have on this race that you're running, the incredible ways God uses you to bless the people around you, how your life is making a difference in the lives of others. Let that be the exciting moments in your testimony, not the incredible regrets that you picked up along the way that God had to heal you on a painful journey from. Let's let those be the exciting bits of our testimony that God was faithful, God came through, God used me in a powerful way. I'm able to make a difference in the lives of others. Wisdom. 
Wisdom leads to minimizing regrets. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, wisdom will follow. The right perspective of the past, the right perspective of sin, the right perspective of the future, because we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. The difference between knowing what God says and doing what God says is trust. Learning from other people's mistakes is the only shortcut that works. Live today like you have a future you care about. Remember, strong emotions make weak decisions and God delivers us from the past, but it can be a painful journey. I have a couple of questions. Hopefully this week you'll have a chance to think about this a little bit, pray about it. Perhaps it's worth talking to someone about. The first one is, do you need to dramatically change course or make a minor adjustment? Do you need to dramatically change course? Are you picking up regrets on a daily basis and you need to dramatically turn some things around? Or are there just some things that are going on that are worth praying and getting breakthrough and getting some help with? But do you need to dramatically change course or make minor adjustments? Second question, which of the seven steps would be most helpful to you? Which of the seven steps would be most helpful to you? If you could do just one, what would make the greatest difference? Trust what God says, learn from your mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes, to think two steps ahead, to be aware of strong emotions, to ask people you trust, or be in agreement with your spouse. Which of the seven steps would be most helpful to you? Hebrews 12 verse two, we do all this, all this, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Let's fix our eyes on Him. Let's fix our focus on Him. Let's let Him change our perspective. He's the beginning of this life of faith. He initiates, He originates, He pioneers, He starts, He's the author. He's the one that begins this life of faith. And His death on the cross, it paid the price to heal the broken relationship between God and humanity. And three days later, when he rose from the grave, he had conquered the power of sin and death once and for all so that you and I could know life. And when he rose again, we are able to share in that life, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us enough to pay the price we could never, ever pay. And he's the perfecter. It's what we just read. He's the perfecter. He's with us every single step of the way, helping to guide us, help bring wisdom, help clean up our messes when we make mistakes, help get us back on the right track, show grace when we need grace, mercy when we need mercy, forgiveness when we need forgiveness, and clean us up and get us going again. He is incredible. Amen. It was 19 years ago now that I made the decision to follow Jesus. And as I stand here today, I can tell you that it is easily the best decision I have ever made, ever made. In those 19 years, I've had ups, I've had downs, I've had good days, I've had bad days, I've had bad seasons, I've had great seasons. But even in the ups and downs of life, I have never once regretted my decision to follow Jesus. Not once. And you may be here today and you may have never been in church before in your life. This may be the first time in a long time or you may be here every week. I don't know, but as I'm sharing this and I'm sharing about Jesus being the initiator of our faith and he's the one that gets this faith started in our lives. You may say, you know what? I've never started this life of faith. I'm not following God, but I wanna start. 
And if you're at that point, the good news is we can start that today. The bad news is you are out of excuses for waiting another moment than getting in right relationship with God as we begin this life of faith. We're going to pray a prayer in just a moment. And when we pray, I'd love to include anybody here that would be honest enough and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start. So I would invite everyone here to close your eyes and bow your heads. This just gives some privacy to people around you and so we can focus on what really matters right now. That if you'd be honest enough and brave enough to say, Tom, I'm ready to start following God, if you just put your hand in the air for just a moment, I'd love to know who we're praying for when we pray in a moment. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else here? I promise we won't embarrass you. Thank you. Amen. Love to know who we're praying for in just a moment. Amen. Thank you. Anybody else? Awesome. Amen. Anybody else before we pray? If this is you, if this is the moment, I'd love to know who we're praying for. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people finding God in here today. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer, and the words are going to be on the screen. I want to encourage everybody here to pray along with me. And uh, we're going to believe that for those of you that put your hand up, praying a prayer like this really starts to turn things around. So come on, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's celebrate with people. Amen.